0: Good morning, good morning. Welcome to church on Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, this is an exciting day for me uh, as a uh, native uh, Cincinnatian. Uh, Something that uh, I have not been able to say for 34 years (laughs) is uh, the Bengals are in the Super Bowl today. Um, So excuse, oh wait, let me make it better. Let me, excuse me while we um, while I do this, I hope you've appreciated the orange and black and white this morning on our uh, backdrop, and um, yeah, it's a special day for me, so um, as a lifelong Bengals fan, I'm expecting complete and utter disappointment with about a 40-point loss today, but still, we're here and I get to look forward to it, but um <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, here is something, completely unrelated to all of that, uh, here is something that uh, I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed this as well uh, throughout your experience in your faith journey. Um, in fact, this might be a part of your story, uh, perhaps a part of it in the past, maybe uh, for some of you this is a part of your story right now, but for nearly every single one of us, uh, our confidence uh, our incompetence in God um, or our faith tends to deteriorate as circumstances around us deteriorate. Uh, the worse life goes, <laughs> the, 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 the less robust our faith uh, is. Our confidence in God rises and falls for the most part, um, on, based on the circumstances of life, right? Based on what, if we're honest about it, seems like pretty random circumstances uh, in life at points. And in those moments, our faith is suddenly uh, and sometimes instantly replaced with fear. Uh, you can be going through, things are going fine and you've got confidence in God and you can be, all right, things are going good. Things are going bad. It's amazing how fast that faith disappears and you just dwell. In fact, it does something to all of us. It makes us all kind of like fortune tellers when we face these kinds of moments, right? All of a sudden, we think we know exactly how everything's going to work out in its worst case scenario most of the time right and as we're looking at it it doesn't seem like anybody or anything is holding or controlling our future let alone god and times can get dark when you get into those kinds of a situation. And, and while it would be easy for me to sit up here in whatever circumstance you may have experienced or be experienced, or circumstances like we've had over the last two years of just uncertainty of who knows what the heck is going on, and some people it's a hit in horrible ways, uh, the worst imaginable, some have just had some financial issues through it, but it would be um, really disingenuous of me to sit up here and just be able to be like, oh, it's gonna work out. God's got you. Like, it's going to, you know, just have faith. Um, partly because I don't have the moral authority to do that because I struggle with this the same way everybody else struggles with this. Um, but, but I do know who, somebody who does have the authority to say it. And uh, that's Peter, right? Does that shock anybody that's been with us the last few weeks? <laughs> that, that, that's Peter. Um, because, you know, Peter, he would tell us exactly what we need to hear Because he's experienced exactly the same type of thing. Um, He would know how to respond in these types of moments when circumstances are going downhill. Um, If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, several weeks, we have been looking through uh, Peter's experience with Jesus as is told to us by Mark. And some 30 years after uh, Jesus left the scene, Peter has been going around telling his experience, his story with Jesus. And all of this time later, while in Rome waiting on trial that is going to end his life, he is still, as he's talking to Mark, just as confident that Jesus is the Messiah as he was the day Jesus left. I mean, after all the struggles he's gone through, after watching so many of his friends be killed, after watching um, just the the state of Israel uh, go down and down and down under the Roman Empire, after watching all of this and nothing working out, he is as confident as ever in all of those circumstances that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And right up front in his story, he lets us know Jesus gave the same message over and over and over again. And if you've been with us, if you've been watching, you know what that message is. (laughs) It is right up front. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news at his turn and embrace this new thing that I'm introducing. Now, if you've been following on the journey, uh, we left off last week, Jesus and the guys, they were way up north in Caesarea Philippi, even way up above Galilee. Uh, They started the long journey, down towards Jerusalem for what would ultimately be the last journey from the north to the south for them. Uh, They'd gone through uh, Galilee, down into Judea, worked their way all through that, gotten into uh, ultimately working their way into Jerusalem for celebrating the Passover. And as they're traveling, a few things happen, and Jesus completely flips uh, the paradigm of authority upside down. This is where we ended up last week. Jesus said you know, to his guys as they were talking about the idea of authority because they were arguing over who was going to be uh, the, the highest in Jesus' new kingdom he was going to establish. He said, look, you know, those, you know, you know how people in the world you, with authority, you know how they handle their authority? And they're like, yeah, yeah. You know how people with authority and with resources leverage those authority and resources uh, to get more authority and resources? And they're like, yeah, 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 we got it, we got it. And Jesus said this. This is where we were finishing up last week. He said, not so with you. Not so with you. This is not the kind of kingdom I have in mind that I'm introducing, and this is not the kind of king that I am going to be. And before they can even object, he leaves them. Right? He takes off, and and he leaves us with this thought. Here's what he said. It's not going to be that way with you. For even the Son of Man, which is how he referred to himself, it was a messianic term, did not come to be served but to serve. Subtext, guys, do you think you're better than me? That you deserve to be served? That that's how you're gonna handle any positions of authority or influence that you give? No, and and he didn't just come to serve, but to give his life. And this is the phrase that really baffled them as they were trying to figure all of this out. To give his life as a ransom for many. And this was the part that they just couldn't wrap their minds around. And it was understandable why they couldn't wrap their minds around it. Because as they were were on their way to Jerusalem, the crowds were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They were attracting more and more people. And as they near Jerusalem, they began to get swamped and overwhelmed by the crowds because it wasn't just them headed to Jerusalem. They were headed there for the Passover celebration, which means people from all over the nation were headed to Jerusalem. And so the closer they got, the more of a concentration of people that there became. There was a whole caravan of people who were coming from up around Galilee down to Jerusalem for this festival that was following them, right? And not only are there large crowds following, but there are rumors floating around everywhere. As people are talking about the things that they heard that Jesus did, you know, there was a rumor that he actually raised a well-known citizen named Lazarus from the dead. Did it happen? I don't know. It seems like it could happen. We've seen some other things. There there was a rumor, right, that as they were on their way, uh, he healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, and people would start talking about it. They'd be like, "Is a rumor?" Oh, I don't know. That's pretty crazy. Uh, I don't think it happened. And then somebody would be like, "Oh, yeah. Well, that's Bartimaeus over there, (laughs) because he joined the group that was following Jesus after he was healed." Right? And there's so much energy and there's so much excitement that's building up around this. In fact, Mark tells us this, this about it. In chapter 11, he says, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the field. This is before they even get to Jerusalem, right? They are so convinced that this is going to be a messianic moment right? That Jesus is about to proclaim himself king. Like, it's just that, I I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation to where like, not even of your own doing, but just all the buildup and the expectation of something that you should do or that other people thought you should do got to be so big that you just found yourself doing it. (laughs) Just because that's what the expectation was. Like, that's what Jesus was facing, like he was following crowds that were beginning to, in different areas, number up towards the thousand, like pushing him towards, declare yourself king. Right? And that's what, and that, that's what you know, of course, you know, that's what they were waiting on. So they cut, they spread branches, they cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed, so on all sides, shouted, Hosanna! which essentially is save us. They're looking to him as a type of savior. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, and then it turns political. They say this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. This is essentially them saying, we are looking to you to reestablish the independent kingdom of our nation and deliver us from under Rome. Like this was their declaration. And so they, all of the people, they were anticipating the exact same things that the disciples we're anticipating for. That when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he was going to proclaim himself king and the age that they had been waiting for, that they had been praying for, that they had been watching for, for generations was finally upon them. Of course, while all of this is going on, the disciples, they're euphoric. They're like, this is, this is fantastic. Like we can feel the energy building. The people are for him, right? This is The moment is right and we're close to him. Forgetting already the lesson about not so with you. right? And, and there, you know, and all this talk about if you remember last week, all this talk about spitting and suffering and flogging and death, all of that talk Jesus was doing, long forgotten. The thrill and the excitement of the crowd had f- caused him to completely forget about all of that stuff. Clearly Jesus was mistaken <laughs> because there's so much energy. It felt like a festival. All the way to Jerusalem. Then it gets even better. Because they get to Jerusalem, and even though it's late in the evening, when they get there, Jesus doesn't just go and find some place for them to spend the night and then start it. No, no, no. Jesus goes straight to the temple. Right? And as they're going in, as they're going in, the 12 are excited. Because they're like, oh man, we normally would be finding a place to stay right. He's going straight to the temple. He ain't wasting no time. This is happening, right? They're like, okay, here we go. Here's what happens when he gets to the temple. Chapter 11. Jesus went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12, which Bethany was about a little less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the disciples were like, that was weird. He walked in late, looked around and left, right? So they spent the night in in Bethany, get up early the next morning, walk a couple miles back into Jerusalem and they go back to the temple. But instead of acting messianic, instead of declaring himself king and taking hold of the mantle that all of the crowds wanted him to accept at that time, Jesus (laughs) makes a mess. Here's what he does. He goes back in after observing what he observed the evening before, he starts flipping tables (laughs) and he starts driving out the money changers and he essentially declares after he gets everybody's attention because that's attention grabbing. He declares, you have taken what was meant to be a house of prayer and you have turned it into a corrupt commercial enterprise. Right? And everybody is upset by this on different levels and for different reasons, right? The chief priests were mad about it. The religious leaders were upset about it. The disciples were upset about it for different reasons than those guys were upset about it. The disciples were upset about it because they're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, this was your moment. We need friends in high places here in Jerusalem as we make this transition. Then the text says this. The chief priests and the teachers of the law began looking for a way to, to kill him because they had already heard from their spies that they had sent up north to check out what was going on with this crazy new rabbi they're hearing about. They had already heard that this guy's a troublemaker, right? So they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed. Not not at his miracles. Mm -mm. The whole crowd was amazed at his miracles teaching so jesus makes this big scene stirs everything up once again leaves the city for the night next day he comes back to the temple right and the leaders are ready for him this time they're like oh man they had spent all night coming up with questions that would trap and trick jesus in front of the crowd right and they did this because if they could get the crowd to turn on Jesus, that would give them permission to then turn on Jesus and have him arrested and ultimately executed. But with this many people and this big of a concentration during the festival on Jesus' side, there was no way they could make a move. It would lead to riots in the street, right? And so they're like, okay, we need to we need to, uh, trick him. So they start asking these tricky questions. And he responds with a parable that in this parable, as the religious leaders are listening to it, it is very clear to them that they're the bad guys in the parable. Right? And so here he goes. Here's what it says. It makes them even more angry. Then the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they wouldn't arrest him, and here's why. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left him and went away. So Jesus continues to teach. He's on the Temple Mount, which is an elevated area above the city, which had a plaza up on top of it where the temple was. And it had the outer courts uh, where everybody could come in and begin. And then there were different levels uh, of areas until you got into the Holy of Holies. And so he's up on that area out in the outer courts, continuing to teach, right? So they regroup and the Pharisees come up with some more trick questions. Uh, and they they come back. And the the Pharisees got some questions. The the, uh, Sadducees have some questions. But the Pharisees are going to go first with the questions that they had come up with. And I want to spend time on one of their questions. And the reason I want to spend time on it is twofold. Um, Is because, one, I think that Jesus' response to this particular question um, illustrates the brilliance of Jesus more than any other singular thing that he did. And the brilliance, I mean the way that he would phrase things and present things and cause people to look at things in a different light. Um, The second reason is, is because a lot of times when we're reading through stories, just because we aren't Jewish and we don't know the cultural context, we miss things. There's things that are a big deal, but when we read them in our English and with our American culture background, they aren't a big deal to us. We don't even know why they're necessarily a part of the story. And so this exchange that Jesus has with with the Pharisees here is extremely significant. And it was a moment of brilliance. So the Pharisees, they approach Jesus as he's up on the Temple Mount, close to where sacrifices are made every single day. And they come to Jesus and they start out trying to butter him up. right, they start out like, Jesus, Jesus, we know, we know that you are a man of great integrity. Listen, if anybody starts out a conversation with you saying, I know you're a person of good integrity, (laughs) you need to immediately be like, that's right, I'll talk to you later. And you need to get on out of there, right? You're getting set up for something. They said, we know you fear God, Right? We know that you don't fear men. In fact, Jesus, we know that you don't even care what men think about you. So in light of all of this, Jesus, we've got a question that we wanna ask. And to be honest, it's a good question, right? They had sat all night trying to figure it out. It's a pretty good one. Here's their question. Verse 14, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Now, let me tell you a little bit about this tax, right? This imperial tax, it was a poll tax that every single Jewish person owed, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of employment status, didn't matter. If you were Jewish and you were breathing, you owed this tax. And everybody hated this tax, Because it coincided with the time that Judea came under direct rule of Rome. And so every time they had to pay this tax, it was a constant reminder that they were not a sovereign state. They did not control themselves. They were under the control of Rome. Now, this was a good question to ask Jesus. Because saying yes to this question, you should pay the tax... Right, gets him in trouble with the Jewish patriots and all of the Jewish people who hated the tax. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it, it, it is tested over time. You want to turn people against you? Tax them, <laughs> right? Go after their wallet. That's when, pooh, that'll get them every time. That's why so many people leave churches, <laughs> right? I mean, let's be honest about it. We're an honest church here. We're going to be honest about it. And so they knew if Jesus answered, yes, this is something you should do, oh, he loses support of the people. Now, on the flip side, if Jesus says no, now he's in trouble with Rome. Because Rome's only criteria for all of the countries that they inhabited and that they ruled over were keep the peace, keep the money rolling. And all of a sudden, if you have somebody who's popular with the people saying, no, you don't need to pay this tax, there's going to be trouble, right? Right? And so they've got him back to into a corner. And it's even more significant in a bigger corner because it's Passover week. And so the city is full and the anti-Rome sentiment is running pretty high during this time. And the crowd is just sitting there waiting for his answer. I can imagine as they asked the question, they were like, ooh, yeah, Jesus, should we pay it? Should we, right? Now I think, I think Peter and the guys, as they heard this question, I think their thought was, uh-oh, uh-oh. How is he going to get out of this one? Followed quickly by them looking around for the closest exit. <laughs> because if things started to go south, they were going to bail. Right? And so, so here's what happens. Jesus, Jesus and he, I, you know, I played in my mind and I play things up probably that didn't really happen. But here's how it happens in my mind. They asked him the question, should we pay the tax or not? And I just imagine Jesus going to one pocket, going to the other pocket, checking for his wallet. I mean, like, oh, I don't have any money on me. Maybe what do you guys do. You got, you got a coin for me, right? He says to the Pharisees, he says, bring me a denarius, which was the coin. Let me look at it. Right Now, Judean Jews were required to pay this tax not with just any money, but with, with a Roman coinage. Here's what that coin looked like that they were required to pay the tax with. Right? On, on, one fr- on the front side is, is the picture of Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar at the time. And the inscription around the outside of that um, essentially says uh, that this is the son of the divine, uh, Augustus. And so essentially he's got this coin with his face on it interpreted saying, "Son of a god," is what that is. Now on the back on the coin, theres he's sitting on his throne, right It proclaimed Tiberius to be the high priest of the Roman religion. So everything about this coin is offensive to the Jewish people. And Jesus looks at the religious leaders who asked him (laughs) the question and says, let me see your coin. Bring it to me, right? But that wasn't the worst part. So here it is, verse 16. They brought the coin, which means the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had that coin on them. So picture this, Jesus asks for this coin knowing that he isn't holding one and then all of a sudden here's a religious leader reaching in and pulling one out and holding it in the palm of their hand, right? And he asks them, whose image is this? Now at this point in the conversation, like that was checkmate. It's game over. We, we, in our current context, reading this, we don't know that yet. I mean, most of us have heard this story. We know the end of the story. And so, yeah, we know that now. But reading through, we don't know it yet, right? But I guarantee, I guarantee everybody within earshot of that conversation knew it as soon as he asked the question, as soon as he asked the question. and, And here's why. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are carrying around images, in their pockets. Images, specifically not having images, that's one of the big 10. That's one of the big 10 commandments. They didn't have images in the temple. They didn't have images in their homes. They just didn't have them. That was one of the thou shalt nots, right? And so all of a sudden, here are the religious leaders, not only with the image, but in the temple holding The image. Jesus rubs it in. Here's what what he says. And, and, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Whose inscription? Fun fact. (laughs) You ready for a fun fact? About five years earlier, Pilate had had some Roman shields brought into the city. And those shields had pictures of Caesar and an inscription on them. And he just had them brought into the city, not even into the temple, just into the city. And it led to riots. It led to people c- refusing to do their work and allowing things to just start to fall apart in the city. Crops going untended, things being, uh, uh, not being built and formed, like just everything ground to a halt. People literally just sat down in the city where they were and refused to move. And that wasn't even in the temple. That was just an image on a shield existing in the city. Eventually, Pilate had to relent and had the shields removed and sent back. Rome, But this was a very big deal. And these leaders were now in no position to criticize Jesus because they are carrying around on the temple mount this adulterous imperial money. And so sheepishly, I imagine, they begin to answer Jesus' question. Knowing, knowing that they had been outdone by this rabbi from Nazareth. <laughs> it was their response. Caesar's, they replied. So I can, <laughs> I can imagine. So, 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 so. Let, let, let me get this straight. You have Caesar's image in your pocket in the temple. <laughs> and then I pictured him just kind of shrugging, being like, well then, you probably should give it back to Caesar, don't you think? It seems like the thing to do. Here's how he says it. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And Peter's like, we couldn't believe it. Right? But he found a way out of it. Like, blow his mind. Here, here's what it says. And they, all the they's, even the religious leaders trying to trap them, they were amazed at him. So so the Pharisees take off. They go to lick their wounds. They go to try to come up with new questions to to get Jesus with. Next up are the Sadducees, right? And the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They thought once you were dead, that was it. That was all there was. And so they come up with this ridiculous hypothetical question to try and demonstrate just how absurd Jesus's view of an afterlife was, right? So they tell this story that they made up. There's a woman and she gets married and then her husband dies. So she marries his brother. And then that brother dies, and she gets married to the next brother. And that one, and so on, and so on, and so on. Until she married all seven brothers. Which, <laughs> I, the absurdity of the story that they made up. I mean, my gosh, what in the brother would, number seven? Why would he even bother? <laughs> I marrying? Mean, like, no, I know how this ends. The other six are dead. Like, you're a black widow. Like, no, this is not what we're doing here. But they, they came up with this, and then they asked this just ridiculous question. So... In this alleged afterlife, Jesus up in heaven, whose wife is she? Does she have seven husbands up in heaven? Because that's weird, right? And it's just weird. And then Jesus' response to them is pretty much just offensive. Because he looks at them and he basically says, you haven't even read the scriptures. Right? You've not even read the words of Moses, which is offensive because of course they have. They could sit there and quote the scriptures to him. Of course, of course they've read it. And then he does something absolutely brilliant. He goes through one of the teachings of Moses and he uses a verb tense to disprove and show how ridiculous their whole premise even was. Just from a verb tense, right? And they're they're like, Oh, yeah, we didn't notice that. And then, and then to no one's surprise, verse 34, from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus decides once again to leave the city. He's not staying overnight inside of Jerusalem. He goes to the outskirts of the city. And what happens next is just absolutely extraordinary. Chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Right? And they were talking about the temple structure up on top of the temple mount that was sitting on the inner parts of that court. Right Now, to be fair, it really was magnificent. It really was. In fact, Herod had spent many, many years and a fortune on building this temple for the Jewish people. And when he built it, in fact, he built it to be earthquake proof, right? The earth would not be able to shake this temple down. In fact, some of the stones weighed not 500 pounds, 500 tons. They were just ridiculous. And they're marveling at the size of these things. And then Jesus says something absolutely extraordinary. He says, do you see all of these great buildings? Talking about all the different temple buildings that were around them. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Wait, 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 Jesus. Are you telling me that all of these stones are gonna fall down? Nope, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm saying thrown down. Here's what they were looking at when they were talking about this. So you see the outer walls going up to the top left-hand corner there. But that was the inner temple. And you see the tiny little door on the front. So this was a magnificent, a magnificent building. It was built up, that whole plaza that it's built on, that takes up about 37 acres. If you have any idea how big of an acre it is and can picture that size in your mind. And every single one of those stones, of those walls building those structures, Jesus says are going to be thrown off the edge of that plaza. Here's a picture of the plaza from another view. So you can see way down in the front of the bottom, that tiny little door and how high those walls are that it is sitting up on top of. And that temple structure on the inside. Every single stone, he says, is gonna be thrown off of those walls down into the valley below. And the disciples are thinking, "What, a, Jesus, what are you talking about? An earthquake couldn't even take these walls down. That would take a massive army. <laughs> Jesus is probably thinking, yeah, yeah, it would take that, wouldn't it? So Jesus walks on, they leave the temple. They walk outside of the city gates, end up walking up onto the Mount of Olives. And later that evening, as they're sitting looking and they could oversee Jerusalem, and as they were looking specifically towards the temple itself, the disciples kind of looked at Jesus and they're just like, what were you talking about? All the stones being thrown down. That doesn't make any sense, right? And what follows from Jesus is the most remarkable, um, unexpected, verifiable prophecy given by any single person at any single point in history, right? Jesus predicts in extraordinary detail, in extraordinary detail, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and specifically the destruction of the temple, Right? And so he 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 says this, and sure enough, 40 years later, 40 years, on August 6th, to be specifically, year 70 AD, the Roman legions, multiple legions, who had come down from Rome, right, and were under the and were under the control of Tiberius, they had been outside the outer wall of the city, and for months had been on the outside. Finally, they break through the walls, they flood into the city. And they are angry. They start destroying everything. They go up to the temple and they set everything in there that'll burn on fire. And then, and then with Jewish slave labor, tear down stone by stone, every single stone that made up this structure. And they push it to the edge and shove them off into the valley below. In fact, if you were to visit Jerusalem today, you would see at the base of that wall, all the way around it, these large giant stones still laying there from where they had been pushed off over to the edge. And what Jesus predicted that day, sitting on the Mount of Olives, actually came true. But the question is, why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus predicted it and that that happened? Because it seems like I'm kind of being a little gleeful and excited about the destruction of a temple, which is weird, right? But it's important because Jesus' entire message from the get-go that that Peter put up front as he was telling Mark his experience was that that something greater than the temple is here. Right, that there will be a time when the temple will no longer be necessary because something new had come. And in fact, it was something new that would make you and the you beside you more holy and sacred than the temple, which is a big deal. What was about to take place was that the Spirit of God was going to inhabit his followers, Paul would describe it this way. He would describe it as he was trying to explain this whole idea. He would say, we would become walking temples. That is the temple, the presence of God, the spirit of God was now portable. It wasn't concentrated in one specific location. The time had come. The kingdom of God was near. All that was left was for the new king to ratify this new arrangement between himself and mankind. Here's what happened next is Peter's telling his story to Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover, which is the reason everybody was in Jerusalem to start with. And the festival of unleavened bread. were only two days away. Once again, Jesus and the disciples find themselves on the outside of the town. And the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, we haven't made our arrangements as to where we're staying in town for Passover. Do you want us to go find something? Unbeknownst to them, Jesus had secretly already made arrangements. And so Jesus says to him, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to go into town. I want you to look for a guy carrying a water vessel and uh, talk to him. He's gonna take you where you need to go. And to which when you read that, this is another one of those things that we just kind of fly by. You know, we might think like, well, I mean, that seems kind of challenging. The city's packed. I mean, how many guys are gonna be carrying water vessels around? The answer is one. Men didn't carry water vessels. The women did that. And so Jesus was saying, I want you to go in and I want you to look for this very unusual thing. So they go in and they've, sure enough, they get into the city and there's the guy carrying the water vessel, right? And so he takes them to this house that has two stories. And they go up into the upper room and they begin to prepare for Jesus to show up to celebrate the Passover. Dropping down to verse 17, everything was ready when evening came. Jesus arrived with the 12. And I'm sure that Peter and the guys were thinking, this has got to be it. This is, he's been messing with us for the last couple days. This has got to be it. And it was it all right. It just wasn't the it that they thought it was. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. And I imagine if Peter had given more details about what was going on there, he probably would have said, and we all paused and looked at each other because what? This is my body? Weird. Then, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And after they had drunk, after it was too late, after there was no turning back or deciding not to, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Whoa, 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 Jesus. All right, first of all, (laughs) ooh, like you just had us drink this and then you call it your blood. I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's bad news for Jewish people. But Jesus, a covenant? Only God can make covenants. And covenants are between two people or a person and a nation. So who exactly is this covenant between? Jesus. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Many. In other words, Jesus was telling them, this is a covenant between God and everybody. No one is excluded. And they're probably thinking, oh, okay, that's great and all. But Jesus, we don't need a covenant. We've got covenants. What we need is a kingdom. And Jesus, we were hoping you were our king. As it turned out, it would be days, for some of them weeks, before the significance of what Jesus said to them that evening would sink in and they understood what he was talking about. But it was clear to them, even though they didn't know what he was saying, it was clear to them something was up and Jesus seemed disturbed. They would eventually leave that upper room, head into the garden of Gethsemane, where soldiers would show up with torches (laughs) And then there was Judas. Peter, in all of this, reacts violently, <laughs> whips out his sword, ends up cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And in my mind, I, I, I'm kind of making this up, not kind of, this is just how I picture the story in my head. In my mind, I don't think Peter was headed for the high priest's servant. I think Peter was swinging at Judas. Judas. And I think Judas ducked out of the way, and the high servant took the sword. That's what I think happened in my head because I mean, why would he go after the high priest servant? There was plenty of other people there to go after. But, but that was what he was doing. And, and then and then uh, he, here's how Jesus responds to that. Jesus responds, to all the soldiers, am I leading a rebellion? Am I leading a rebellion that you would come out with swords and clubs to capture me? I'm not a fugitive. I haven't been hiding from you. Case in point, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. And then Peter makes a decision that, that he will live to regret the rest of his life right? Because suddenly, suddenly his expectations of Jesus and his experience with Jesus aren't lining up. They aren't lining up. Suddenly there's a gap, a gap between what he expected Jesus to do, who he expected Jesus to be, and what he is experiencing, right? It just doesn't match. And in that moment, As is the case for us in so many moments when who we think God is or how we think God is supposed to operate isn't matching up with our current circumstance and our current experience. Peter lost hope. Peter's faith was shaken. And I think when Peter made this next statement to Mark as he's given his story and Mark's writing it down, as Peter said this next thing, I imagine Mark paused and looked up and was like, Peter, do you really wanna say this? Do you really want this on the record from here on out for whoever may read this? And Peter, I think, said, Yeah, because this is what happened. I know it doesn't look good, but it happened. Here's what happened: then everyone deserted him and fled, because of course they would. It's over. It's over, right? There would be no kingdom. Jesus would be no king. He was no Messiah. And isn't it true? With you, with me, our human nature is to assume the worst of God, right? It just, it just is, right? When circumstances get dark and things start going wrong, like we assume the worst of God. He's not there. He's abandoned us. He doesn't care, all the way to, I don't even think he exists. I mean, that's in our nature. Faith deteriorates as our circumstances deteriorate. That's what happens. And in those moments, faith is replaced by fear. It's replaced by fear. And if that's you in your life and in your experience, and when that's me, because that has been me, on more than one occasion, Peter would say, I get it. I've been there. I've experienced that. I lost my fear in moments of uncertainty as well. And he would probably tell us, and in that moment, it led me to the conclusion that in spite of everything I had seen with Jesus, in spite of everything I had experienced, in spite of everything I had heard him say, in spite of all the miracles and the way people reacted to him, in spite of all of that, it led me to believe that God was not near. And that led me to the most regrettable decisions and actions of my life, as he in a very short time would deny that he even knew Jesus was. But in fact, Peter would say during those times when I had that feeling, not only was God near, but God was closer than ever. That in those dark moments, when it seemed like God was far, he was actually close. And in those moments where it seemed like circumstances were out of control, God was working in those circumstances. I just couldn't see it. Not until the end. Not until I saw how it came up. So don't, 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 Peter would say to us, don't do what I did and allow poor circumstances to shake your faith. Don't lose faith. When circumstances are tough. Easy for Peter to say. Easy for me to sit up here and say it. But when you're in those dark moments, much harder done. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But there are some things that are just universally true. And for some of us, you know, if you don't have a life verse, if you don't have one that you're like, yes, this is my verse. Let me point you to something Jesus said. (laughs) He said, in this life, there will be trouble. (laughs) So even if you don't believe any of the Bible, you can believe that (laughs) because you've experienced it. In this life, there will be trouble. In this life, things are not going to go your way. Circumstances are going to get dark at times. (laughs) And Peter would say, that doesn't mean God isn't near and isn't at work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for what must have, what had to be difficult honesty as the writers of the gospel recorded these stories and people had to be honest about their shortcomings and the things that they didn't get and they didn't understand and the way that they failed within the story. Lord, I thank you for that vulnerability and that willingness of these people to be honest so that we can know (laughs) that there's not something wrong with us. And in our faith journey, when we experience these same issues. And Lord, for probably every single person in this room, there have been times when circumstances have been dark and we allowed it to shake our faith and wonder if you were near at all. Lord, for some of us, we, we, we've gotten to the other side of those things. And the outcome and the revelation of what you were doing through them was so great that we won't doubt again. For some of us, we haven't got there. For some of us, we may be in the middle of those dark circumstances. I pray that you use these times to build our faith into something unshakable. Because the entire message of Christ was God is near. The kingdom of God is now. Lord, help us to know that when you feel far, you are not far. And when it seems like you're absent, you are at work. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week uh, as we look further in the narrative, looking at the life of Jesus as experienced by Peter, uh, recorded by Mark. Thank you all so much.